Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us once again. This is episode 130. Uh, we are recording on Sunday, June 13th at 3 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Todd, next weekend is Father's Day, which means, more importantly, it's uh, it's U.S. Open. Who, who do you got winning the U.S. Open? Is it is it COVID Rom? Well, I don't. Where where is the U.S. Open this year? Uh Torrey Pines, San Diego. Well, I don't know. Torrey Pines is interesting. That's like Tiger's favorite course, right? I I would think that. I mean, it's hard to not predict Kepka for a major, especially the U.S. Open. But I mean, it seems like one of the random ones that would be like a, a Danny Willett or type or something for a long shot. A Danny Willett type. No, I don't think Danny Willett necessarily would anymore, but, but, uh, okay. 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 It may, it, this might be when, uh, when, uh, oh, what's his name? Xander Shoffley breaks through. That's who I'm going with. I would like that. I'm going with Shoffley or Cantley. When's the uh, celebrity tournament with Tom Brady and uh, Aaron Rodgers? Or did that already happen? Doubles tournament. Oh, that's happening like July, I think. Or it's it's Phil and Brady versus uh, Bryson DeChambeau and Aaron Rodgers. I just can't wait for all the media to you know read into what Aaron Rodgers was wearing that day, or who his caddy was, or what he was driving. You know, as illustrations about where he's going next year. Of course, of course. I wonder if Miles Teller is going to be his caddy. Well, he's been a part of every uh, public appearance he's had for the last month. So, I mean, it's possible. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers? Yeah, because him and uh, Miles Teller and Shailene Woodley are still best buds. Mm. Like, he went, they went to the Kentucky Derby together. They were in on vacation in Hawaii together. That Miles got like punched in the face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all well, the right. Question well, is, can you host Jeopardy from name your city? You know, Denver, Las Vegas. I mean, what can can he do it remotely? Is the real question. Sure. Oh, probably. I probably. think so. <laughs> I think the requirements are that he needs to be able to do the show and legalize marijuana, seeing as who he's married to right now. Well, uh, let, let's uh, let's get into what that we're, we're going to be doing. Terry. That was great banter. That was Four great stars. banter. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, make sure you subscribe, rate, review all over the internet. Uh, you can Don't find the podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, uh, Spotify. Um, all the details are at almostsideways.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as well. Okay. Now the big question, what are we drinking? Zach, what do you got? I'm having some Storm Chaser IPA for the third straight, straight week, but uh, this is the last one. That's what you said last week. <laughs> I was clearly lying, and uh, 
I will have to get some more. Mid- probably midway through this podcast. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Todd, what do you got? This is uh, some reposado tequila and limeade. Mm, that the sounds first, very refreshing. First reposado in a while. Yeah, well, you know, uh, they nice may or may not be making uh, one of these in one of my coming up later. <laughs> say that. Wow, that's a big tease. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I should be drinking a storm chaser because it is pouring rain here right now. Uh, but uh, I have uh, this is I went to Ridgewalker today and uh, and got this is their uh, tree to tree Kolsch. So there it is. It, it's it's pretty good. It's pretty good. And shout out to the bartender at Ridgewalker today. Uh, I was talking to her and she's like, oh, I've got big plans. I said, well, I'm getting my beer for the podcast. And uh, she's uh, she said she uh, got an undergrad in uh, film studies at uh, Portland State and is working on applying to uh, graduate school to be a film professor. So, Wow. Shout out. It, it would be like better if I had caught her name, but I didn't. But <laughs> do, do they call them bartenders at breweries? I don't think they are. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's a party foul. Yeah, it works. Would you call the guy at Frass Canyon a bartender? <laughs> or just a hack? A wine pour dude. Wine poor dude. Wine poor dude. Yeah, that's right. That's what Alexander called him. <laughs> All right. So let's hop into what we have been watching this week. And to start this off, we are going to go to Todd. Take us to the cager. Okay. I have a newish movie. Uh, came out last year. It is The Crudes, A New Age. Ah, Crudes. Uh, the Crudes are still in search of a, a new home after the events of the first one. We sort of get filled in with what happened in the first one to make it a standalone movie, but it doesn't really work because all the, I don't know, everything you, you need to know about the characters to, is what makes it funny for them, like interacting with other people. But uh, anyway, so they come across this like really fruitful establishment that's like walled in and safe and innovative. And it's run by this family called the Bettermans. And those are they are voiced by Peter Dinklage, Leslie Mann, and uh, Rose from Star Wars. Um, they view the Croods as like these savages, and they want them to leave, but they also want to keep Guy, who is played by Ryan Reynolds, uh, which is the, the oldest Croods daughter's boyfriend. They want to keep him, and they want him to marry their daughter because he's like a more evolved human and like one of the only ones they've come across. And some cataclysmic shit happens, and they're forced to like work together uh, throughout the movie. Uh, the movie has no issue with the fact that its action scenes are basically video game scenes. Like Cage even says at one point, he's like, he's like, get back in the game. And it's it's like a scene that's uh, like it's like ripped off of like a Crash Bandicoot chase scene or something. It, it, like it, it was really kind of odd. But I mean, it, it completely embraces that fact. And Cage does get the chance to flip out a few times in this movie. He has one where it's like a, a like an early 90s Cage, like, come on, man, you know, like great cage stuff and and it, the movie kind of looks like how to train your dragon meets wreck it ralph sort of with the otherworldliness of the setting and emma stone is of course the star of the movie again she's fantastic and because she, she is in everything including cruella uh but yeah she's great in here again the mo- problem with the movie is that it's like really blatantly political but it's like counterproductive in, in that sense like it thinks it's satirizing one thing and it's clearly saying sort of the opposite at the same time but i guess you can ignore that and it's um 
it, it's, it feels like a Flintstones movie, and I'm, which I'm totally fine with. And there's like this one great cage freakout that's just like legendary cage stuff where he's freaking out about the punch monkeys. He like was really doing his thing in this movie for the first time in an animated movie since like Christmas Carol the movie. Uh, Peter Dinklage is hilarious. Uh, he is uh, he has a big booming voice that makes his like quasi villainous character like really work. It, it's a fun movie regardless of its uh its missteps and and it, when it fumbles around its tone and it because it, it, it has like that Pixar ish like importance factor to it. <laughs> And the additions of Dinklage and Leslie Mann are just, I mean, it, it, it keeps it, it keeps it moving. And once again, I want to see how this shit was recorded because like Nick Cage is just amazing in these animated movies. Like him and Dinklage have a scene where they, they're like calling each other bro and they're dancing around to, I know this much is true by the Spandau Ballet. Like, I want to see what that looked like when they were actually shooting it. Cause I, that, I mean, that would just be gold, but I don't know. The movie is, is really good and it's kind of bad. It's like lame and riveting. But I like it, and I'm giving it uh, I'm giving it three stars, which is just a tick below the the first one. Uh, that puts it the first one was number twenty three, and this one's number thirty four, between Birdie and Seeking Justice. So there you go. The Crude's a new age. You, got, you either you guys caught that one yet? Not yet. Not yet. I, I bet your I bet your kids would would like the Crude's. Yeah, I don't know if we've watched any of the franchise yet. So Terry and I don't have kids together. Just, just to clarify, <laughs> what I was going to add was uh, every time, anytime Peter Dinklage is mentioned now, I can't help but think of Terry's suggestion that he play Hannibal Lecter. That that was such a great <laughs> yeah. point. Now I, I cannot not see it. It it'd be pretty amazing. It really would. Mm-hmm. It would. Maybe with Nicholas Cage as Clarice. It sounds <laughs> like there's some kind of dynamic there in the Croods too, with the shouting matches. They were screaming. <laughs> all right wow yeah <laughs> never be able to hear that line the same way again <laughs> uh all right good well next we have zach with our criterion watch okay i have a couple things i want to review today the first is my criterion watch this week it is from 1966 the sword of doom directed by kihachi okamoto and uh, this is a fairly random samurai movie that Criterion released a long time ago. They actually have a Blu-ray now. I have the old DVD version. The Blu-ray apparently has a director, or not director, but a commentary track. This is a really bare bones uh, DVD, but it's a pretty cool flick. It is a samurai movie set in the 1860s, and it stars Tatsuya Nakadai as Ryunosuke Tsukue, and he is a uh, badass samurai. Um, he is, uh, the movie, so it, it's a traditional kind of samurai picture in one sense, but because I think it was made in the sixties, it has a little bit of this anti-establishment bent to it. So the main character is a samurai, but he's kind of a lone wolf samurai. He doesn't really, uh, respond to any sort of shogun or leader. Um, and he has, uh, really an amoral compass. He sometimes kills people for no reason. Like for example, in the opening sequence, there's a girl and her grandpa hiking up this mountain and he, he, he uh, rips off the, the grandpa's head with a sword. It's pretty awesome. Um, and, uh, again, it's just kind of this blending of old traditional classical, <laughs> almost Kurosawa like, uh, depictions of the Edo period in Japan and, uh, the, uh, 
the uh, sam sorry, traditional samurai swordsman, but this guy who's almost this main character who's more like out of a Shijun Suzuki movie or even like Jean Pierre Melville. He's like total this anti-establishment kind of 1960s, almost almost film noirish in a way. Um, but anyway, over the course of the movie, he uh, he duels um, this other uh, samurai, uh, and uh, the night before they're set to duel, the other samurai's wife pleads to this guy to not kill her husband because she knows that he's not as good as this other samurai and this offends him and he uh, basically rapes her and then it turns into this whole kind of vengeance thing. It's a pretty cool movie. Um, it's a two hour long movie with lots of characters and it's in black and white and I was pretty hooked uh, for most of the time. It got a little confusing at parts. I give it a solid three stars. One of the, again, lesser samurai movies of the 1960s that wasn't a Kurosawa film, but it's definitely worth checking out if that's kind of your thing. Okay, the other movie I want to mention is my new number one of 2021, which is maybe not technically a movie, but so what? I saw it. It's incredible. And that is Bo Burnham Inside. If you haven't seen it already, stop what you're doing. Stop listening to this podcast and just watch it because it's incredible. It is Bo Burnham um, as he is sequestered, quarantined in his little shack one room uh, movie. It's the best one room movie since uh, Mother! Exclamation mark the uh, Darren Aronofsky version. And uh, basically, it's it's not so much a comedy special as it is a musical. I mean, this guy has an incredible uh, musical vocabulary that ranges in genres. Some of the songs are really funny. His send up of like white women's Instagram is hilarious, and his sexting song is hilarious. He does parodies, which makes it feel a little bit like Weird Al. But then there's also this very uh, you know strong uh, undercurrent about social crit or crit criticism critiques of uh, social media and the internet, but also uh, you know just the general messed upness of the whole pandemic. I think it's the definitive and essential work of art that has so far come out of the pandemic, and it is remarkable. I've been like humming the songs to it all week. It's funny, weird. Uh, crazy creative. And I have to say, as a video instructor, I was also personally inspired by how innovative um, Bro Burnham really was in setting up all of his different shots and camera angles, and especially lighting in this all kind of DIY package. So it's an incredible um, experience to watch. It's kind of like Laurie Anderson meets, uh, I don't know, like uh, Jack Black and Weird Al a little bit with a little bit of Andy Samberg in it. It's an incredible experience. I cannot recommend it enough. Bo Burnham inside. It's amazing. Yeah, you texted me about that and said, stop whatever you're doing and go watch Bo Burnham inside. And I said, I'm at my school's eighth grade graduation at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I kind he of said, well, texting, then do it after. <laughs> I've been texting everybody about it this week. I texted Todd about it. Didn't go so well, but I think I'll get Todd to watch it at some point. I got Adam to watch it. He says he agrees with me. I, I hope he's being sincere when he says that, but it, whether you call it a movie or not, I don't know what it is, but I think it's it's an amazing um, piece of entertainment, multimedia storytelling, or whatever we want to call it, but it is really, really good. Best thing Bill Burnham's ever done. And I don't even like his stand-up that much. All right. All right. <laughs> so that, that kind of under undercuts your... <laughs> But it's not stand-up. That's the thing. It's it's nothing like any of his previous Netflix specials. It, there's very little direct comedy in it. And even the even the more traditional comedy that's in it is kind of ironic. And he knows that there's no audience there. So it's just, it's totally, it's unclassifiable. And those are the best kind of movie experiences. What, you know, just something that you, you cannot classify at all that totally exists within its own kind of being. So I don't know. I thought it was great. And uh, check it out. 
I cannot implore people enough to do that. If you if your phone if your phone number is in my phone, I probably texted you this week to check it out. All right. All right. Well, now on to my uh my Oscar anniversary watch. We are going back 10 years to a film that was nominated for one Oscar. And it was not nominated for the most obvious category it could have been nominated for. Made by a legend, nominating a legend. And that legend may have been going up against himself that year. Oh, the what, the Ides of March? Ooh, close. <laughs> not more legendary, more legendary than George Clooney. More legendary. Is there such a thing as more legendary than George Clooney? Uh, when you're dealing with Steven Spielberg and John Williams, yes, yes, there is. Oh, Tintin. Uh, th this is the Adventures of Tintin. Yes, which got nominated for one Oscar, not for animated film. It was nominated for best original score by John Williams, and uh, which is kind of interesting that you have a Steven Spielberg directed animated film, and its one nomination is for the score, not for the fact that it's an animated film. But anyways, uh, the score is really, really good. Uh, this is this, uh, going off of uh, the classic uh, character of Tintin and his dog. And uh, it is going through. It's The movie starts out. He buys this antique wooden model ship. And it just starts this whole thing happening of this mystery around the ship. And everyone's trying to get it. And... And there's some some sort of hidden treasure that you find out about that there that everyone is chasing, and Tintin ends up right in the middle of it all. Um, this voice cast is loaded. You've got Jamie Bell as Tintin, but you also have Andy Serkis, Daniel Craig, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, uh, Carrie Elwes is in this. It's got a great cast of uh, of actors voicing these characters, and for the most part, they're pretty unrecognizable. And I think Daniel Craig needs to do more voice work because he, if, if anything is shown from his work in like Logan Lucky and Knives Out, uh, he's just great at voices. And so he needs to do more voice work. Uh, I'd say if I were to compare this to something, it's kind of like an animated Indiana Jones movie. Uh, and one of the things, one of the drawbacks I've always thought about the Indiana Jones movies is the exposition is kind of boring it can drag a little bit as the movie gets started but then you can you can get into it as it goes along well Tintin really drags as it's getting started to the point that you don't really care necessarily what's going on in the story it's fun to watch the animation is insane uh but I didn't necessarily really care because it started off so sluggish and and it it's weird it's not necessarily it doesn't feel like a kids movie but it also doesn't feel like an adult movie it kind of is a movie without an audience i feel like um it is was right in the middle of the of the 3d craze and there are so many shots of whoa look this thing is sticking out of the camera and it, it's really distracting in that way too but uh i'm giving it two and a half stars it, it was simply for the spectacle of watching it for the actors who are acting in it, 
but the story was really kind of lacking. So, uh, so that's my that's my review of the Adventures of Tintin. Todd, I know you've seen this one. What do you? How do you think I'm? Uh, what do you think of what I said? Uh, I mean, I, I don't entirely disagree. I, I mean, I, I think I, I think I t- said actually <laughs> earlier this week that this is Spielberg's best movie of the 2010s. But I mean, that's not really saying a whole lot because they all are kind of lousy. And, uh, and, and this one is like a moderate thumbs up for me, but I, I do, I do really like the visuals and I I don't know. I I never thought it was necessarily boring, but I mean, the way you described it, you could have been describing any Spielberg movie in the last 10 years. Like you could have been describing war horse or the BFG or whatever, you know, like, or the The post that, yeah. Yeah, well, the, the or, post or, is like one, one ready player one. one. It's like, like scene after scene after scene of boring exposition, and that's the whole movie. Ready Player One, I really liked. I would, I, I might say that's a, that's the best one of of the last decade for Spielberg. I don't know. Well, I mean, I mean, and Lincoln's pretty good. I mean, this is like a oh, I forgot about Lincoln. Yeah, Lincoln's good. Lincoln. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. I know. I never thought Tintin was boring. I thought it was a pretty cool movie, but. I mean, and you can feel like the weirdness of it with the Edgar Wright influence on this because he wrote the screenplay. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's entertaining to watch, but the story just never really got me. And then I, I mean, I was kind of bored with it already. And then I had a I had the DVD Blu-ray copy from the library and it started to skip. And it's uh, but I really didn't care that it was skipping because I was like, I'm I've feel like I'm not really missing much because this is really just to watch, you know, the plane crash in the desert and and the boats fight and jump on top of each other and things like that. However, I will say something fascinating was I think this Tintin totally ripped off the opening credits to Catch Me If You Can because it was basically the same idea and the score was very similar to Catch Me If You Can, at least during the opening credits. Catch Me If You Can wasn't John Williams, was it? Yeah, it was. Oh. That was an Oscar-nominated score as well. It was. It was. Well, John Williams did do it, so. All right. What what movie from the 2010s do you wish Spielberg had directed? Ooh. Or are we, are we just satisfied that he didn't do... Like, I would have liked to have seen him do Holy Motors. I feel like... If he's going into the French, you know, eccentric territory, I would have liked to seen something crazy like that. I like I think if we're going to define Spielberg in the 2010s, it was an experimental Spielberg who didn't really give a shit and just wanted to do the projects that he was passionate about. So, like, go full out, man. I think that would have been that would have been fun to see. Are you guys more excited or scared for West Side Story? I mean, it's somewhere in between. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm necessarily excited to watch it, but I mean, I don't think I'm scared for it. I, I, I can imagine that it could be good. Or maybe Spielberg shouldn't be directing any movies anymore, right? Like maybe, maybe that's the problem. Maybe he's just too old at this point. Like would, would West Side Story be more exciting with, I don't know, Damien Chazelle doing it or, well, of course. I mean, a more innovative director. I, I don't know. Yeah. It, it'll be interesting to see. I will say if if Spielberg has another great movie left in him, I think West Side Story is the type of material that his his filmmaking, what his filmmaking has become, could really uh, boost. 
I think it could really boost that into being something special. But we'll see. We'll see. But I feel like he's done that before. Like, okay, probably my favorite Spielberg movie of the decade was Ready Player One because in a way it was so cutting edge visually, but also it was a total Spielberg movie as well. And the fact that it was total Spielberg, total nostalgia actually made it like more charming in a way. So I kind of like don't look forward to the West Side Story type movie. I wish he was doing something just more weird and eccentric. Another alien movie or something like some sci-fi thing. Maybe, I mean, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't entirely disagree with that. It, it would honestly be fun if to see him like revisit something like Jaws, like because because like, that's had a mythology all beyond what he did. If he was to make a Jaws movie again, I think I, I'd be fascinated to see what that but would it, look like. He couldn't take it seriously though. Like I think if he if he blended in some elements of like when you know Tarantino Rodriguez Grindhouse or something like that, like make it a deliberately stylized you know B movie or something like that. He needs to shoot more for the blockbuster than the art film. I think is what is what we're saying. Well, I think I think he needs more schlock. I think he needs to go back to kind of like you know what Jaws was, which was essentially a very polished grindhouse movie. Yeah. But I don't I can know. See that. That's that's a big if if he has any great movies <clears throat> left in him. No more no more post. Yes. We're done with the post. Even though I gave it thumbs up, <laughs> and Terry definitely did not. I did not. I didn't. Bottom nope. five of the decade. Bottom five of the decade. I do need to revisit that one, though, at some point. No, you don't. I should. <laughs> yeah, you, even I would say you probably don't. <laughs> All right. And I liked it. Well, let's move on and uh, get to our featured review. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zack movie ever made. You gotta see it. Movie Reviews. And our featured review is uh, one of the big releases that was going to come out in the summer of 2020. And now it's coming out in the summer of 2021. Uh, it it has all the makings of a great summer hit. And that is In the Heights. What does Suenito mean? Suenito. It means little dream. That's it? No story? All right, all right, everybody sit down, sit down. It's a story of a block that was disappearing. In un barrio called Washington Heights. The streets were made of music. I am Usnavian, you probably never heard my name. Reports of my fame are greatly exaggerated. Morning, Usnavi. Hey. On these blocks, you can't walk two steps without bumping into someone's big plan. I'm making moves, I'm making deals, but guess what? What? You still ain't got no skills. <laughs> I've been saving up all my pennies in my piggy bank for this day. This is going to be an emotional roller coaster. The odds are against you. But there's a chance, right? A dream isn't some sparkly diamond. There's no shortcuts. Sometimes it's rough. Yeah, I'm a street light choking on the heat. The world spins around while I'm frozen to my seat. The people that I know. They're talking about kicking out all the dreamers. But every day is different, so it's time to make some noise. We had to assert our dignity in small ways. 
Just listen. Little details that tell the world we are not invisible. Ignore anyone who doubts you. In the heights, First Broadway musical done by Lin Manuel Miranda. Now making it to the big screen. Uh, Zach, we're going to you first on In the Heights. Uh, tell us what it's about and what you thought. Because I'm the expert on musicals and Lin Manuel Miranda. Okay, so exactly. In the Heights. In the Heights is an adaptation of the 2005 play, I think, and uh, it tells the story of uh, Washington Heights in Upper Manhattan and um, a variety. Uh, of uh, characters, uh, principally Latino characters, who um, many of whom have come from uh, Dominican Republic or the Caribbean, but have set up lives for themselves, successful lives in the United States, in Washington Heights, in this kind of neighborhood of New York City, which they can really claim as their own in spite of, you know, some institutional racism and uh, also um, discrimination and also maybe a little bit of... Uh, uh, what, what's what's the word? Uh, blah, 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 blah. When when uh, uh, you know they they turn the neighborhood into wealthy. Oh gosh, I'm totally blanking on the word. Well, gentrification. 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 Thank you. Sorry about that. See, I, I didn't write down any notes, so I'm I'm going. <laughs> you know, that's this why I shouldn't introduce movies. Anyway, uh, okay. So yes, uh, in in the heights. Yeah, wonderful uh, music. Uh, yes. Okay. So here's the problem I have with this movie. Uh, it, this is where I'm torn. Okay. So yes, it's wonderful. It's fantastic. Uh, wonderful to watch. Beautiful actors. Great choreography. Fun. Exciting. You know, the lighting is great. Lots of big set pieces and all that. It feels like a throwback to old-fashioned musicals. It feels like a chorus line or something like that. The problem is I saw Hamilton first, okay? And Hamilton was something that was totally cutting edge. It was totally relevant. It had something to say. And what it was saying was, what if we were to look at what we studied in our history classes in high school and realize that it was wrong? Or realize that maybe the founding fathers had a different vision of the United States or a more inclusive vision than what is popularly remembered or what is taught. In the Heights, I don't think has anything really to say. I feel bad saying that, but like, like a lot of the kind of old-fashioned musicals, I feel like fundamentally this movie is kind of empty. That's not to say that there's not great set pieces, there's not great acting. The music is good, although I gotta say, I mean, having seen Hamilton first, I feel like every single song in this movie feels like Lin-Manuel Miranda. He has a very, uh, you know, it's 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 a signature style. It's a good style. It uses, you know, that sort of poetry, R&B, iambic pentameter, you know, interspersed with music, which is great. But like, I kept on thinking, well, that sounds a lot like, you know, the Schuyler Sisters song, or that sounds like, you know, the room where, where you have it, or all these other songs from Hamilton. And so it, it, that kind of like diminished the overall experience for me. I feel like this, this is a musical that really worked probably in the Obama era. It's a very positive, optimistic look at the beauty and power and majesty of the United States and the opportunity for immigrants to uh, flourish um, in spite of these obstacles, most of which in this movie are very movie <laughs> musical obstacles. Um, like I said, those things at the beginning, the gentrification, the racism, I mean, they're all kind of undercurrents in this movie. They're all very underplayed. So I'm kind of torn. I feel like had I seen this movie in 2011, I would have loved it. As it is, I enjoyed it. 
Uh, I wasn't really humming any of the songs afterwards. I, not to say that that's the only marker you should be making about a musical, but I gotta say, Hamilton, I was hooked like right away. I had all that shit in my phone right away on my Spotify playlist. This music, I was like, it's kind of good. I like the lottery song, you know, I like the song at the end where they, I mean, there's parts of it that are good, but in comparison to Hamilton, and I know it's not fair to compare it to Hamilton, it's just not the same experience. And I also gotta say, Hamilton, being performed on a stage was so unique, so different, so unlike what any what I had seen before, what I'd come to expect from a movie musical. This feels just again like a throwback. And again, the, the choreography is impressive, but it just feels like something that was pre-pandemic, pre-Trump, pre-2010s. I, I don't know. So um, I feel like we've advanced beyond this. I, I, I have to give the movie three stars because from the production value standpoint, it's good. But I gotta say, I, I kind of wanted more, and uh, I, you should see this before you see Hamilton. That's that's the best advice I got. Well, I mean, if you're comparing something to Hamilton, it's always going to come up short, because Hamilton is is so great, and I think there's a couple things wrong with comparing it to Hamilton that I think you're missing. One, Hamilton, you knew the story going in. At least the bare bones of the story and so you had that all you already had that connection to what it was uh in the heights you don't have that it, it's it's a it it's a brand new story that we have no connection to second hamilton is lin-manuel miranda refined and reaching like perfection and this is his first show this is him a lot more raw this is him telling a very personal story and uh and I think that is what comes out in this. I'm giving it three and a half stars. Uh, I was fully entertained by it. And it, it, it's a movie that just kind of leaves a smile on your face as you're, as you're seeing the characters, as you're seeing a spotlight on this community that you don't necessarily see spotlighted um, and uh, a spot, spot lit, spot, spotlighted, spot litten. I don't know. Uh, anyways, uh, John M. Chu does an amazing job directing this as well. I think it, it it's a beautiful directing job in, in that, yes, it feels like an old classic uh, Hollywood musical, but it's got this energy and this vibe, and it it's through the direction and the colors and some of the shots that he's able to get that, uh, that breathe new life into it. Uh, it's, it's just a whole lot of fun, and, and uh, yeah, I, I was fully entertained. I watched it at home. I'm hoping to watch it uh, in the theater at some point soon, because as I was watching it, all I was thinking was, man, this is probably really cool to watch on the big screen. So, uh, so that, that's where, that's where I'm at. I get what you're saying. Uh, yeah. Not all the, the songs aren't necessarily as, as catchy as, as stuck in your head as, as I, what, what did you say? The, the view where it, where it is or the room where it happened or no, the rumor, the rumor where it has it. I forget exactly what you said, whatever it was, it was really wrong. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, no, in the Heights, I had a lot of fun with, and it, it's got this energy. Anthony Ramos is a movie star. I can't wait for him to take off because he's awesome in this too. All right. So three stars from Zach, three and a half for me, Todd, where are you at? Uh, I liked it less than you guys. I, okay. The movie's way too long. Like the, the, that's, that's, that's one thing. And I've never seen Hamilton, but I really couldn't understand what was going on most of the time in this movie because I couldn't understand what they were actually singing. 
Like it's like when you listen to a rap song, you don't know what they're necessarily saying until like the second or third time you you hear it. And I kind of felt the same way about this. I was kind of lost most of the movie because I couldn't understand. I, I don't get I don't get that vibe from the from the movie musical to have this kind of music. Uh, Do you but, speak Spanish? It, no, of course not. Well, I mean, sort of. I mean, I took Spanish. That's that's not speaking Spanish. I I don't know. The the acting I think is pretty good. I, Anthony Ramos is of course amazing, and Dasha Polanco is fun to see. She was in Orange Is the New Black, and I thought she was really good. No one's getting nominated from this movie, but it's pretty much a lock for a SAG ensemble nomination, I would think. Uh, another problem I had was I don't understand why the movie is told in flashback. Like the, those beginning scenes with him talking to the kids are just like lame nothingness trying to make it a movie but it killed the momentum every time they went back to it. And those scenes really don't have any reason to exist. When you actually see what, what that was actually about, it's somewhat surprising, but it doesn't really justify the existence of the movie in that sense. I, I think, and some of the storylines I thought should have been left off. Like I'm sure it all meshed in the musical, but this just like put characters in front of you that you don't necessarily care as much about as the main people that you want to get back to. Like Jimmy Smith's, like he's fun to watch and he's entertaining because he, he sings and stuff and he's in Dexter, of course, but Lin-Manuel Miranda is actually, he looks just like the Skinner who is also in season three of Dexter. And that is the type of thing that was going <laughs> through my head because my mind kept wandering because I couldn't understand the music and I was just watching it. Cause it, I mean, it is, it is pretty beautiful to watch, but the, the director is the director of the step up sequels. And you can absolutely tell from how he directs this movie. Like, with the style of dancing and constantly breaking out into like a neighborhood wide dance throughout the movie as seemingly out of nowhere. And it's like beautiful overproduced visual flair looked like a step up movie. And I, I don't know. I mean, maybe if I had gone to the theater, which I kind of regret not doing, I would have been more involved in the atmosphere and I would have actually, maybe I would have been able to understand more of, of what I was watching, but uh, the songs I feel like also are kind of instantly forgettable. They all sounded exactly the same. I'm not the target audience for the movie, but I so I feel like I kind of have to give it out of respect two and a half stars. But a, a, in in reality, my experience watching it was actually all lower than that. So wow. it kind of sounds like the two of you are kind of kind of in a similar spot where you're giving it a higher rating just out of respect. Yeah, I I don't know if I I agree with everything that Todd said. I think there was a lot of hard work that went into this movie. I think it's really and Todd even acknowledged that really high production values. The choreography is great. I think there was time and effort put into it, so I have to acknowledge that. But I think the other points that Todd said are 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 pretty accurate. I mean, the story. I Terry, you said that you know one of the differences between this and Hamilton is that this has an original story. No, it doesn't. Like this is this is the most like sure. Tr predictable, you know, trope-driven musical ever. I mean, there's nothing. I, I meant really more. It's original. not a. It's not a story that you know. Like, it's not when you go into Hamilton, you know the story of Alexander Hamilton, and well, you, you know think, the story. You think you know it? Sure. See, that's sure. the brilliance of Hamilton is how subversive it is. It, it subverts your expectations. So, like this movie, yeah, it does feel like a step-up movie. It feels like a lot of musicals. It feels like a music video at times. And so I give it thumbs up on the basis of that. I, as an entertaining piece of pop art or pop, you know, creativity, it's cool to watch. But it just, uh, what you know, ha Hamilton's the reason it's messing it up for me. Because I think Lin-Manuel Miranda is a genius. I mean, if you've ever watched him on the late night shows when he does, like, the instant raps that he comes up with in his head, I, the man's a genius, okay? He's a, he's a what, isn't he a Pulitzer Prize winning um, uh, musician? So, like, I think so. he... 
uh, obviously has incredible skill musically, but also in terms of his so social and political messaging. And this movie just doesn't have any. I don't, I don't know if in 2021 you can really get away with a musical that doesn't really have any sort of like political or social ethos. And I think this movie wants to have it a little bit I, I, because it's definitely about being inclusiveness and, and having a diverse cast, but in a way that's kind of skin deep. And I, I, I just wish the movie had addressed uh, maybe more issues instead of it wanting to be more of a throwback that everybody just naturally loves. I wish it had a little bit more of an edge. Maybe a different director would have emphasized that. I think I saw uh, recently that Lin-Manuel Miranda started writing this musical when he was 19. And I think it hit Broadway when he was 28. So, I mean, uh, just super, super young doing all this, all this work. And I think that's kind of what you see in that he's still developing his storytelling ability. But, uh, but what I saw, and I mean, this was a Tony, Tony award winning musical, like this won the Tony for best musical of the year it came out. Uh, and I think what, what they saw then is what I'm seeing is just the, the pure energy and uh and charisma of the of the music and the and the story is is kind of undeniable i felt let me ask you something do you think this movie would have been better had it been shot as a performed play like hamilton because i kind of think it would have i think that would have been more interesting in a, in a way you know i've seen clips of of this when it was on broadway and what's interesting is this was a very minimalist uh show on broadway very very stripped down set very little going on kind of on stage a very very small cast uh so i think i think opening it up and allowing it to be this huge production actually did this one a lot of good it it, cha it changed it into something more as does lin-manuel miranda direct his plays no no he doesn't okay because I was thinking, like, why didn't he direct this? Like, you, maybe maybe it would have been, I don't know, maybe that would have kept to the spirit of what it was trying to do or something. I, I don't know. I, I mean, for what I, I figured worth, that he did direct them. For what's worth, I really liked him as an actor in this movie. It was, he was probably my favorite character in the movie, and I thought he had some of the best musical numbers. In fact, the end credits scene, the scene after the end credits, I kind of loved, and I wish that that had been developed more <laughs> into a storyline that, maybe had a few more numbers attached to it. Cause that actually was really funny. The rivalry uh, between those two characters. Well, and especially it being those two characters. Oh, like, exactly. Well, that, that again, was, yeah. Cause it, it was not it, think of Hamilton. Right. Well, well, but the thing is it's, it, it's Slim Manuel Miranda and Christopher Jackson who in the original Broadway cast were Usnavi and Benny and Chris Jackson played Benny in the original cast. So, uh, so you, you have these two originals coming back to, to reprise their roles or to be a part of it in cameos. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting, and we'll kind of wrap up on this. Uh, I saw recently as this was coming out that um, to kind of tie it to what we were talking about, this shot in the Heights was shooting like a block away from Steven Spielberg's West Side Story at the exact same time in the summer of 2019. Like uh, they were interviewing uh, John M. Chu recently, and he said like there was one time where they actually had to go over to the West Side Story uh, set and say, "Hey, your catering truck is in our shot. Can you please move it?" That's how close they were shooting to each other. So it's just it's just kind of fascinating that they were that 
everything was happening in this in the same area of New York City. And even like there, there's a one scene at the basketball court. And I when I saw that, I'm like, that looks like the set of West Side Story. And I bet they, they both filmed it in that same spot. All right. Well, Todd's giving it two and a half. Zach is giving it three. I'm giving it three and a half. Uh, this is in theaters right now. It is also on HBO Max, so you can watch it there. Uh, it The big story of this weekend has been the, the disappointing box office numbers for In the Heights. I think because so many people are staying home to watch it. So I would say if you can go to the theater and watch this movie, I think it's definitely an experience that would uh, enhance it for sure. Okay, moving on, we have another uh, featured review. As we come to the stable, you like that graphic? You like that one there? Shout out to Adam Daly for putting our graphic graphics together. Is that come to the stable? Cowboy? Yeah, it's exactly what I was going to say. It looks like that Idris Elba <laughs> horse movie in Philadelphia. Kind of does. It kind of does. Anyways, we are doing a come to the stable review, a throwback review of something none of us have watched that randomly came up in conversation throughout the week, and we decided we had to go for it. And so we're going back 35 years to 1986 and reviewing a movie called Eight Million Ways to Die. Where is Sarah? You don't make the rules here today, baby. Jeff Bridges, star of Jagged Edge and Starman. You're going to blow the deal, man. Roseanne Arquette, star of Desperately Seeking Susan and Silverado. You got Sonny killed. They're in trouble. In love. For a, a half-assed hooker, you're an extremely arrogant woman, you know that? And in way over their heads. It's murder, prostitution, drugs, and passion. Announcing the video cassette release of a sensational detective thriller. Now cut it loose! What? Hope we love you, baby. Anything can happen when there's eight million ways to die. Todd, tell us first, tell us why this came up and then tell us about uh, about this movie and what you thought. Well, th there's this uh, uh, this podcast called the Pure Cinema Podcast that uh, completely ripped off our idea of doing the la best last movies of somebody. And Tarantino was on the podcast because it's kind of sort of like his guys. And he he mentioned this movie as being the best, one of his favorite five last movies. And it's because it's the last movie of Hal Ashby. And we had never heard of it. And Zach and I both thought this sounded awesome and like a great Tarantino movie that he never made. And so that's why we chose to uh, come to stable this one. And plus it was streaming for free. So it was uh, no big deal to find it. Uh, so the movie stars Jeff Bridges as Scudder, who is a cop who uh, was involved in a fatal shooting, and it really, like, ramps up his alcoholism, which leads him to lose his job and kind of lose everything else, and he meets this prostitute who he sort of falls for and sort of feels sorry for, so he tries to get her out of that life uh, that she claims to be stuck in. She works for this uh, crazy, like, batshit crazy drug kingpin a angel played by Andy Garcia, uh, his girlfriend is played by Rosanna Arquette, and who she finds herself in the thick of this like vendetta. And um, when she comes in contact with Scudder, uh, you know the whole thing naturally leads to this big bloody shootout because uh, uh, very masculine uh, opposing forces are going at each other. Basically, um, Jeff Bridges is kind of awesome in this. He, uh, he 
this is like the heart of his stardom. Like he was nominated two years before uh, for best actor for Starman. This is like the peak of him being a movie star. It sort of feels like a Costner kind of role. Like maybe it was me like five or eight years later or something like that, or maybe Michael Douglas sort of role in how subtly noirish it is. But Bridges, he makes it work, and it's kind of unlike anything I've I've ever seen him do really. Uh, Andy Garcia probably got his role as Sonny Corleone's son from this movie because he has this immediate high energy spark. Like he's got this like magnetism to him and it's like impossible to replicate. He's got this like mean streak and he is he's nuts. I, I love watching Andy Garcia in this. Uh, Rosanna Arquette also. I've always been a fan. She's really good. It does not feel like a Hal Ashby movie. It feels much more like all, an Oliver Stone movie who actually was the writer. There's definitely some Scarface in there. 1986 apparently was just like the year of Oliver Stone. He had Salvador, he had Platoon, and he had this movie uh, come out. It, it, it feels like an 80s movie in its like music and technical qualities, but it feels like a 70s movie at its core, but like 90s, almost in its sensibilities. It's sort of an enigma. I, I'm not really sure what the, how, how, to, how to actually categorize this movie. The only real issue I have with the movie is like the alcoholism side story seemed pretty unnecessary. It was like something <laughs> that would be explored if there was a TV show made about the, this world. Uh, that stuff just sort of added a layer we didn't necessarily need. It took away a bit from the action, uh, and it's because it's a pretty complicated premise. Uh, the scene, uh, the scene with the snow cones, is just insane. Like it's yes. pure intensity and masterful acting, and a genius idea to have a snow cone machine in like the back, the back of your car. I I, I love that, and like the, those these two just charismatic actors going at each other was was pretty beautiful to watch. And I, I have no idea why this movie has such low scores everywhere you look. I know on the podcast, Tarantino said that there was sort of a production nightmare and all the power was taken away from Hal Ashby. So critics just like shit on it because they, they didn't like that. But the IMDb score is even bizarrely low. Like the Mexican standoff scene is like this. It may be even more like bonkers than Reservoir Dogs. I mean, and you see that and you see like Rosanna Arquette in there and you see Tommy Lister Jr. as a bodyguard. You can clearly see that Tarantino loves this movie and he, it had an influence on him. I love this movie, and I, 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 the first thing I thought when this movie started was, I bet Zach is going to love at least the opening credits because it's got this big blue corny text and pseudo like suspenseful music that sounded like electronic like speed kind of opening opening credits. But so even if he doesn't love the movie, I'm sure he'll love at least that. I'm giving it three and a half stars, and it's my new number ten of 1986. <laughs> wow! All right, all right. Well, Zach, what were your thoughts on the opening credits? I, I was going to say, I think this is a top five opening credit sequence of all time. <laughs> but you're not even talking about the best part, which is that it's this crazy helicopter shot that starts out in the middle of nowhere and then flies through downtown LA and then finds the car that they're driving. Okay, that's crazy. There's no CGI in that. How ma- I mean, how many times do you think it took them to do that shot? We're talking like Buster Keaton train accident level intensity with in, in, in choreography with this shot like that that was amazing um yeah what do i think of this movie i mean it was fun for sure i feel like it was probably more fun if you were as like loaded with alcohol as uh the uh the jeff bridges character was throughout this movie i mean he had blackouts so you don't want to like blackout watching this movie but I think alcohol definitely helps 
aids in your appreciation of the movie. There's some like curious plot loopholes in this movie that are never explained. For example, how does the Alexander Alexandra Paul character, who's a prostitute, all the women characters in the movie are prostitutes. How does she know uh, Jeff Bridges? It it never made sense. Like she does this like cryptic roundabout way of like sending a letter to him, and then there's like a mole at the AA meeting, and then like what? I, the plot makes no sense. It, it, it's absolutely a uh, nonsensical plot. Um, it feels like an episode of Miami Vice. Uh, Andy Garcia feels very uh, like Al Pacino and Scarface. Um, the name Scudder sounds either like Ariel's bird friend from The Little Mermaid or a mid-2000s comedy starring Jack Black. I can't decide. Um uh, my other favorite thing, I agree with Tarantino that I love the idea of a black-owned uh, grocery store chain called Po' Boys. That's brilliant. That should be, that needs to be something. Uh, it should be in the Tarantino universe. And I also love, of course, one of the most iconic visual things from this movie, which is the tram that goes up to the house of the drug lord. I mean, where do they get ideas like that? That's, that's I innovation. Uh, every second of this movie, um, I kept thinking Hal Ashby, Hal Ashby, this is not, what is, Hal Ashby, are you kidding me? Like, this is the most un-Hal Ashby movie you could possibly <laughs> imagine. Um, you know, I, I, the guy was on drugs uh, for a lot of his career. I think this was him trying to make a comeback in Hollywood, and of course the producers didn't trust him. I give this movie one and a half stars. That's the best I can do. I think it's I think it's awful. I think it's a tragedy uh, to end the career of a great director like this. I, the snow cone scene is great. It's great. I love the Rosanna Arquette throw up scene. Um, <laughs> one and a half stars. That's all. That's all I can say about it. Uh, well, I'll I'll be going in between you guys. I'm at three stars. Uh, it was it was definitely very entertaining. And yeah, I was trying to figure out what it's like. I'm, first, I'm glad somebody brought up the snow cone scene because, I mean, the the way Jeff Bridges is attacking that snow cone in between his the line deliveries is is some of the best acting he's ever done. <laughs> put down the whole thing in like a one and a half minutes. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, and I mean, okay, it's a snow cone. I, how can you be eating a snow cone, having an intense scene like that? I mean, I feel like just that just taking the bite of that of ice like that just has to take you out of the moment every time you do it it just doesn't make any sense anyways um it, it kind of felt like in some ways it kind of felt like timothy dalton era james bond in Ooh, in kind yeah. of how it how it was built which which i don't think is necessarily a bad thing i kind of i like timothy dalton uh i also felt like it felt a little like a film like bullet with Steve McQueen in where you've got the main character that just kind of falls into the middle of this plot that has been going on for a long time. And he's just kind of got to figure out where he fell in and what is happening and how he's going to help finish it. I mean, it's one of those kind of like in burn after reading, let me know when, I don't know, it makes sense. And that's kind of what Jeff Bridges is doing the whole time. He, the whole time he's like, what the hell is going on here? Who is that? Why am I finding this person? And she just died. And I, what is going on? And and so, but it, it at the same time, it's got the plot holes too, where it resolves certain things without telling you how it resolved them. I but 
Like, it's like, I don't know who you are. I don't know what's going on with this, but now I'm in love with you. And we are going to ride off into the sunset if this all works out right. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. I also had to had to think it was funny that you had um another 80s black character in a white suit. And this guy's name was Chance. And it was the last chance for Lance Vance. That's all I could think of as I was watching him <laughs> go along here. But uh, GTA Vice City. Um, I also liked how uh, how the, the bodyguard, his name was Noseguard. That was just great. <laughs> um, Junior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, then, well, and and the the scene where you first see him, where he like comes charging at Chance and and Jeff Bridges as they're arguing from across a field, wearing these short shorts and no shirt. It's like, what the hell is going to happen? And I was just expecting it to be like an office linebacker moment where they're just arguing, <laughs> arguing, arguing. And then all of a sudden, Jeff Bridges is completely laid out, and I wish that's what had happened. Well, what what it reminded me of was like the scene, like the character in Get Out, like the 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 dad character that that is just like always like bolting around, you know, like that. That was what <laughs> what I was thinking. Like, wh- what's about to happen? <laughs> like, why? Is, like, is he even like is he catatonic <laughs> or something? <I> don't know. <laughs> anyway, it was it was fun. And and that's it, it was fun. It was entertaining, and so I'm giving it three stars. I still don't fully understand what was going on, but would I watch it again? Probably, probably. It was fun. It was fun. Yeah, I think all of us are, have the exact same opinion about it, just different star ratings. I think so. I think so. Todd, you missed it though. This movie should not have starred Kevin Costner. It should have starred Tom Berenger, and it should have been directed by William Friedkin. Okay, I could see that. I mean. Like I said, I mean, it's, it seems like a later Costner role or like a Michael Douglas role. Like, Michael Douglas would have been kick-ass in this around that same time. I mean, look at the movie poster. It even looks like a Bond movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's standing there holding the girl with a pistol in his hand. I mean, with the car and another girl on there. I, it's, it's, it's a Bond movie. It also sort of looks like a grindhouse like early 70s like car chase movie or something from that poster i don't know like bullet like street (laughs) no like a street racing yeah i mean sort of maybe bullet you know the podcast that tarantino did on the on pure cinema podcast was a great podcast i mean todd said they plagiarized us obviously they did obviously they listened to our podcast and stole our idea but they took it in a very different direction that we did there was no bullshit okay there was no artsy fartsy stuff they went purely for schlock and i mean it's tarantino you know the poetry between the lines right so one of them had sleuth at least <laughs> but of course tarantino has never seen sleuth so that was yeah. not on, on <laughs> yeah. <Quinn's list>. bizarre <laughs> i really want to watch the the charles bronson one i can't remember what it's called it had two titles but like i mean that's all you need to know tarantino had a charles bronson movie and then this movie on his list oh, when he and loves funny form he like he loved great quite make his list. He had a Top Gun esque monologue theory about George Roy Hill films that I never thought about before. <laughs> you hear that Todd about the George Roy Hill makes you know three types of char- characters you know the the dreamer and the 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 menace and the what I mean, that was a great great monologue that was almost like his Top Gun monologue. Well, he's like written essays on George Roy Hill like that's one of his guys. And then I gotta say. 
what Todd and I texted about this. We, I was a little shocked to hear how much he hated Richard Brooks, but I've done, I, I'm very curious about that Richard Brooks movie with Ryan O'Neill because it does look terrible. Ebert and Siskel have a review of it online. It, and I love that Tarantino just said that he watched it for the unintentional humor. I, I got, we got to watch that movie. It's, it's also about an addict, a gambling addict, and it seems like it's from the same cloth as, uh, as this movie was. It was a it was a fun movie. I gave it one and a half stars, but I would I would watch it again. Absolutely. Uh, well, that's good. That's good. All right. Well, we've got we've got one and a half stars from Zach. We got three stars from me. Three and a half from Todd. It's on Tubi right now, it's just, uh, which is free for everybody. My problem with it is it's like watching Joe Namath on the Rams. You know, it's just not right. Or or uh, you know, Tory Holt on the Jaguars. I mean, what what? I mean, it's just it, that's not right. Just because of Hal Ashby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, he only made like ten movies, so I don't know. This, yeah, uh, but this is not this is not being there. No, it is not. <laughs> LVP of the movie was whatever the hell Jeff Bridges thought was a good idea of having a mustache. Yeah. Just it yeah. just took me out of it every time I saw it. I, it was the eighties, you know. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. Yeah. All right. Well, that is that. Again, 8 Million Ways to Die. It's on Tubi if you want to check it out, which is free to everybody. Moving on, it is time for Power Rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power Rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. Todd won our game last time again. So Todd got to pick the category four power rankings again. And so, Todd, what are we doing? So I went with something I thought maybe because it's starting to, you know, like when I chose this category, it was super hot out. I mean, yeah, now it is like pouring rain, so it's not, it doesn't fit as much. But yeah, I wanted to do something somewhat summer themed. So I said, we're going to do scenes that uh, feature a swimming pool. And because I thought that this could be a really fun way for us to like really dive into a whole bunch of different things. No pun intended. Like, um, like we could, <laughs> we, like it could, it could be scenes that actually have a pool. I didn't even realize I was going to say that. Um, or like scenes that are in a pool, like iconic scenes with pools. I mean, because I was think- thinking about it, most of my favorite movies have a scene with a pool. And so we can, I don't know, this could go a million different ways and I, I can't wait to see it. I mean, I thought you were really going to go with this is in honor of In the Heights because they have a pretty awesome scene in a pool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought about that when we wa- when I want to watch the movie. I yeah. didn't know about that, though. <laughs> well, you could have just made that up and said it right now, but you didn't. You didn't. Anyways. Okay. So, top five scenes involving a swimming pool. I'm going to go first. Uh, I had a little bit of trouble figuring, going through and finding some good ones. And I kept on thinking, it's like, there's this one shot I can remember from a swimming pool, but I can't remember what movie it's in. And so as I was building my list, I, I was like, okay, I think I got my list. Oh, wait, no, I just remembered this one. And so um, anyways, that was kind of how my list went. But number five is a classic, iconic scene in a swimming pool. That is one of the ultimate great comedy gags of all time. It is the baby Ruth scene in Caddyshack. Um, you you have to mention this. You have to mention 
Caddyshack and the Baby Ruth scene, it, you're you have the swimming pool. Someone drops a Baby Ruth in, and everyone thinks that someone dropped a turd in the pool, and everyone goes scattering. Uh, then they have to empty the pool. I need this sterilized. And then Bill Murray finds it. Here it is. And then he pulls it out and takes a bite. Um, it, it's no it's, big deal. <laughs> it's no big deal. <laughs> it's a great scene. It is a great scene. And it it's one of the, the goofiest gags in a super goofy movie. Uh, that is just a classic. So number five for me, Caddyshack. Great choice. Never, never thought of that. That it's an inspired choice. It was one, it was one of the first I thought of actually. Yeah, I mean that's one of like the few that it, it sort of is like okay, yeah, of course. Like the, that's as, a classic thing. As they're all leaving the pool, like Jaws music is playing. As you see, like the underwater shot of the of the baby Ruth. <laughs> it's good <Baby>! stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Zach, number five. All right, number five. What I had a hard time with this list was thinking of scenes. Like, I could think of movies with swimming pools in them, but not necessarily scenes. Or they had multiple scenes with swimming pools. So, I don't know. I'm just going to wing it here. I have Number five, I got two movies. It's a tie, but I think Todd will be okay with it. It is a tie between Let the Right One In and Let Me In, which both have their climactic uh, sequence at the end of the movie in a swimming pool. Actually, a lot of these movies um, take place at the swimming pool because the main character, um, Owen in Let Me In, I can't remember his name in Let the Right One In, the main little boy character, you know, he wants to buff up, he wants to, you know, be a swimmer. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the bullies get to him at the end of the movie and it's in the swimming pool in the middle of the night, no one's there. And then the little girl shows up, the girl vampire. Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz and Let Me In, uh, the girl in the, the Swedish version. And then uh, you just start seeing heads pop in the water. And, uh, you know, it leaves everything to the imagination, um, just the, the, the grotesque violence. Uh, you know, it's visible, but underneath the water. It's a great way to end that movie. Very unexpected, very sinister. Uh, just a really awesome. I can't think of that many, like, violent action sequences in swimming pools. So, I, you know, I feel like you have to represent that somehow on this list. And uh, both great movies, two of my all-time favorite movies. So let, let me in, let the right one win. That's a, right. that's a good one. I didn't think about that. I, I do have a violent swimming pool scene coming up later. so And I'm sure you'll you'll appreciate it. All right. All right. Todd, number five. Uh, my number five uh, is The Sandlot. Merlot. Yeah, I kind of figured. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a given. <laughs> all right. We already predicted right. your top three, Terry. But Oh, did you? Okay. Did you now? Okay. All right. At least top two. Okay. Anyways, all right, so that, that means it's back to me then, isn't it? Okay, so number four on my list, I'm going a little more, uh, or a lot more serious with uh, with this one. Uh, I'm going to, it's kind of become a theme of this episode, a Steven Spielberg film. Uh, one of his greatest films, going back to 2002, Minority Report. Merlot. And, oh, okay. Nice. All right, well, there we go, there we go. I can't believe that. I'm not even joking. <laughs> it's yeah, a great I, I scene. I didn't even think about that. That's awesome. You both have it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, then, Zach, number four. Okay. Number four is uh, a, a selfishly Zach scene. It's not going to be Merlot. It is from Mrs. Doubtfire, one of my favorite movies of the 1990s. Oh. And 
It is the, the scene where Mrs. Doubtfire takes the family to the swimming pool and uh, lo and behold, who's there, but not Timothy Dalton, but Pierce Brosnan is there and he's Sally Field's new paramour. And so Mrs. Doubtfire gets very upset at that. And then when he asks her to go in the water, she's, oh, you wicked, wicked man. No, I think they have a rule against beached whales. So then what happens is Mrs. Doubtfire sits at the bar, gets drunk, hits on another woman, and then 007 comes up, starts talking about, you know, what a loser Sally Field's ex-husband is. And then the best moment of the scene is Mrs. Doubtfire grabs an avocado or something, or a lime, lime. I think, It's a lime. Throws yeah. it at him. It's a drive-by fruiting. Uh, it's a, it's a drive-by, it was a drive-by fruiting. It must have angered someone from the kitchen staff. Uh, great, great moment, great scene, one of the funniest moments in the movie, and I'm glad it wasn't reload because I wanted to talk about that scene. Well done, well done. Thank you. The swimming pool was a little irrelevant, but, you know, it was at a swimming pool. It's true, it's true, it's true. All right, Todd, number four. Uh, my number four is a very Todd pick. It's uh, the pool scene in Leaving Las Vegas <laughs> when they're at the motel outside outside of town. You know, yeah. I'm a prickly pear. You know, and he he drinks tequila like off her body, and then he he like drinks tequila underwater, and then the underwater kiss. Like it's a beautiful scene. It's a it's like a really sad scene, but it, it, I felt like it had to be mentioned. And I've this is like the fourth time I've had this on a list this year. I had it on the movie City in the Title movies. I had it on Las Vegas movies and opening sequence movie uh, of movies. But uh, yeah, I mean, plus they get kicked out of the motel because he gets too drunk and eats shit and like breaks the table. And he's like, <laughs> whoops, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a it's a great scene, and and the pool actually does play a a, a cool part because I've I've never thought about actually trying to drink something underwater, but I mean, he makes it work. It doesn't work in real life, trust me. And uh, <laughs> Lori Metcalf in that scene, kind of the douche biggest douchebag of that scene, kicking him out of the pool. Was that Lori Metcalf? Yeah, wasn't it Laurie Metcalf? Am I crazy? I have no idea. Wasn't it like Beth Grant or something? Oh, it might have been Beth Grant. Why did I say Laurie Metcalf? I have no idea. I think, I think we need we need a deep dive on this. I think we we've already done it. a deep dive on <laughs> leaving Las Vegas. <laughs> and I think she came up in the douchebag conversation. It was Laurie Metcalf. No, it is Laurie, Laurie Metcalf. Yeah, yeah she Laurie. looks like wow. Beth Grant in that movie. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, number three on my list. Uh, we'll see if I get to talk about this one. I'm going with Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, I get to talk about it. Cool. All right. I don't remember a swimming pool scene in that? It happens near the end of the movie uh, after uh, after the car gets wrecked and Cameron completely goes catatonic, and they try to find a way to snap him out of it. So they go to a swimming pool and uh, and Sloan and Ferris are hanging out. And they're just kind of they're they're chilling, and they put Cameron completely unresponsive on the diving board because that's a smart move. And then he decides to just fall off the diving board and go down to the bottom. Ferris dives down, saves him, pulls him up, trying to wake him up, and then and then he just opens his eyes and smiles. Ferris Bueller, you're my hero. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a great scene because it's that moment where where Cameron realizes that. His life isn't going to end just because he's going to disappoint his dad on one thing. And uh, and so it's kind of a poignant scene, but also it's a it's a really silly scene, too. And it's the one time that Cameron ever got the drop on Ferris. So. Uh, so, yeah, 
Number three, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, I could have seen that coming. That that that's a uh, definitely honorable mention for me. It's a good one. It's a good one. Zach, number three. All right, number three for me is Minority Report. Now, I may want to turn it back to Terry because I actually have a few scenes from this movie that involve swimming pools. So, Terry, why, mm. why don't you talk about your scene? Because I think the scene I chose was a different swimming pool scene. Yeah, so the one I was thinking of was the one, the flashback scene where he loses his son. And and you get you finally get what his what the Tom Cruise character's motivation of his entire life is, is to make sure stuff like that doesn't happen to other people. Uh, and it also give, gives you why he has the vices he has and, and things like that. And it, it's just an, seeing him at the bottom of the pool and then all of a sudden the watch fall. It, it's just it's just heart wrenching and just brilliantly done. Yeah, I mean, when we deep dive that movie next year, you know, it's like when I get my record of collection up there on Paul 19, when we review that movie <laughs> next year or deep dive it, uh, we'll talk about how great that scene is. Actually, that was, I mean, I was prepared to talk about how great that scene was, but the scene I was going to pick was the scene where Tom Cruise kidnaps Agatha because that is also yeah. technically in a swimming pool. I don't know if Todd wants to call it a swimming pool, but screw it. I'm calling it a swimming pool. It's water. And, and it, it's in a water pool, and it's indoors. Tank, and then they flush the <laughs> toilet. They go down the drain. And like, that's an awesome scene because he looks like an old man, you know, and he's got Wally there. And Wally has this, you know, unhealthy, uh, you know, obsession with the Samantha Morton precog. It's like a great moment in the movie. And then I, uh, I mean, yes, of course, the, the, the kidnapping of his son is great, too. Two kidnappings at a swimming pool. I can't really think of any other movies that have one kidnapping at a swimming pool. But uh, Spielberg, uh, I guess, stopped making good movies after 2002. But uh, coming up a lot in this podcast, I guess. I, I never really gathered the parallels of how his, you know, his life changed forever when someone was kidnapped at a swimming pool and he fixed you know, he resurrected his life arc by kidnapping someone from a swimming pool. Uh, let's be honest. There was watches involved in both as well. Ah. I mean, he, yeah. He was looking at the watch 24 minutes until he was going to kill the guy, you know? Good point. Spielberg genius, but not after 2002. Apparently. <laughs> All right. Todd, number three. Uh, my number three is another John Hughes mention. It is from National Lampoon's Vacation. Ah, uh, yes. Which is the only skinny dipping scene on my list. Uh, you know, <laughs> this is crazy. This is crazy. This is crazy. Like, and I think we can all relate because he's like following this girl like throughout the movie. And he, the only reason he does like go skinny <laughs> dipping with her is because she's like smoking hot. And he, and, and but it's like in the middle of this hotel area. Obviously, he freaks well, out. Yeah, it's he Christy wakes, Brinkley. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he, he he freaks out, he wakes up the entire hotel, and then hit the awkwardness of his explanation to his wife, and then his amazing talk with Rusty after it, where he says, like, yeah, she was a swimming waitress, you know? Like, you know, she took my order. And he's like, yeah, I understand. You think mom will buy it? And, you know, <laughs> good talk, Russ. You know, it, it's, it's a great scene, and, and, yeah, that was one of the first ones I thought of, and, yeah, John Hughes, uh, I mean, apparently 80s movies, have, there's a lot of good swimming pool scenes, but yeah, this is definitely one of the one of the peak ones. That's a good one. I almost had that on my list. It was it was going to be on my list, and then it was one of those where I went, "Oh no, this one has to be on my list," and so it fell off. Understood. Speaking speaking of the one that I went, "Oh, this one has to be on my list." That's my number two, 
And uh, my number two is the final scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Because oh, yeah, we can't talk. We can't okay, do this so we, list. I, we didn't have your top two right. Well, we yeah. have number one right. Yeah, we got number, number one right. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then you have a huge well, no, omission. Got right. no, Zach got number one right. I got it wrong. Okay, well, you yeah, you can't talk about this without having a <laughs> swimming pool and a flamethrower. Uh, <laughs> From the Thirteen Graves of McCluskey. Yeah, the <laughs> this is the craziest ending. Like, I mean, Tarantino has crazy endings. This might be his craziest of all time. When you have the Manson family about to go kill Sharon Tate and all of them, and instead they end up at at Leonardo DiCaprio's house with his old buddy Cliff Booth in the house too. And then all of a sudden a flamethrower comes out and he just torches them all inside of a swimming pool. And it is the craziest ending and his whole alternate reality, alternate, you know, what if this happened instead? I mean, it's all part of it, but good grief. I can't believe you guys forgot about this. And I almost did too. I almost did too, but yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just remember sitting in the theater and he goes and grabs the, <laughs> the, the flamethrower. And I, j- I almost fell out of my chair laughing so hard because it was such an entertaining moment. I wish I had thought of that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, always on these power rankings, there's always like two or three, like so obvious ones that you completely forget about. And yeah, that was one of them for sure. Yep. Yep. All right. Okay. Zach, number two. My turn. Okay. Yep. Uh, my number two is a movie we recently deep dove and we talked about this scene and my admiration for the scene is that, and that is It's a Wonderful Life, the swimming pool scene uh, where they are dancing at the prom. But that's from the half of the movie you don't watch. No, that's yeah. not. Well, I, <laughs> I I think the middle stretch of the movie is when I don't pay attention to it that much. But uh, I do always try. I mean, it's a, it's the second best swimming pool scene in, in a movie. So I, I try to keep awake long I enough know. off the eggnog and Kahlua I'm drinking in the middle of December <laughs> so I can make it to the scene where they are dancing and then the floor opens up. And then, you know, not too unlike Charlie Chaplin on roller skates, they get precariously close to the edge. And, uh, and then the crowd gets into it and they're all clapping and dancing. And then uh, they go, they get really close again. And then they eventually fall over and then they keep dancing in the water. And uh, of course, it leads to another sexually charged moment when Donna Reed has to walk home and then her towel uh, is, is slipped out. And she, so she goes behind the bush. I guess that's after the swimming pool part. But, you know, swimming pools um, do lead to great things. And it definitely led to their uh, relationship uh, in the movie. So, uh, yeah, the, it's a wonderful life. What I think I even didn't I choose that as my favorite scene in that movie when we did our deep dive? You might have. You might have. Yeah, I think I was contractually obligated to put that on my list. So. That's why it's there. Good call. Good call. I it would have been improved, I think, with a flamethrower, though. I agree. <laughs> Every swimming pool scene vastly improved with a flamethrower. Mm-hmm. All right, Todd, number two. Flamethrower would have actually helped my number two maybe get resolved <laughs> a little easier. It is the uh, the climactic scene in It Follows, which uh, mm. it's a terrifying movie, regardless. But like. Having the having the like big scene be at a giant school pool is it's just a stroke of genius and just absolute undeniable anxiety at the same time. Like and then they sort of figure out how they're going to kill it, 
when the, and their plan sort of fails at the same time. But it seems like this and make this like maybe the best horror movie of the last 10 years because and like I was just rewatching the scene to in order to do this and I was completely breathless watching it out of context like b- because the staging of it is so perfect. And yeah, a flamethrower probably would be a really useful tool in trying to like kill an invisible <laughs> monster. But yeah, but this scene is is pretty genius and I mean the the way it's shot, everything about that scene is just amazing. I haven't seen it follows. And I don't really remember that scene. Really? No. It's like the big the I big watching a long time. Okay. Well. I'll take your word a, for it. It was a pretty violent scene though. If it's better than anything better than the swimming pool scene leaving Las Vegas, it better <coughs> be pretty damn good. Right. Okay. All right. My number one, it's already kind of been revealed. It was Todd's number five. It's the Sandlot. Wendy Peppercorn. And it went yeah. I mean, when I was thinking about this list, it I had to go with Wendy Peppercorn and Michael Squint's Paladoris. And uh I don't know, yeah, but yeah, Squint he looks pretty crappy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Squints can't swim. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. Looks like a dead fish. Uh it it is it was the first scene I thought of. It had to be my number one. And until I thought of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was like, okay, I have a number one and then a bunch of mediocre picks. Uh, and uh, th- But it's just it's just perfect. I mean, to to mess with a lifeguard like that, that you've got that you've got a crush on. Uh, that's that that's just classic there. And it was, it, it was filthy, rotten and low, but it was cool. And cool. <laughs> it's it's just come on, squids, pull through, man. Come on, bud. I mean, it, it's the, the 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 just grin he gets on his face. What? What the? Um. And then, oh, what's the song that plays immediately after he does it? Oh, this magic moment. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's just the perfect song at the perfect time. It, it's 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 an awesome scene. It's so great. It's so great. And that amazing movie. Yeah, it's a, it's obviously it's classic, it's iconic, and you know, you know, he stood a little taller that day. Like, <laughs> that, that also, the only flaw in that scene is like the the other people knew what towels were theirs to throw at them because they literally got thrown out of the place. <laughs> like, they, they threw their towels at them. But uh, I also love Ham showing up and he's like flirting with the old ladies that uh, like by the pool, and then he does a cannonball and completely like wipes them out with water. But yeah. Oiling, uh, lotioning, lotioning, oiling. oiling. She, you don't know lotioning. what she's doing. Yeah, she does. She, does. she knows exactly, exactly what, what she's, she's doing. doing. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, it's yeah, it's a great scene. It's yeah, yeah. It's iconic, as iconic as you get when it comes to swimming pools. But not the one I thought you were gonna have number one. I thought that was your number two. Okay, okay. Well, Zach, what's your number one? Well, then I don't know if, I guess I don't know what Todd's number one is now at this point. Maybe it'll be Merlot after I say my number one, but my number one is from a Todd movie. And it's a movie that, that I love too, although it's taken me a longer time to love it. And it's the best scene in the movie. And that is the pool scene from Boogie Nights. Yeah. Merlot? Okay. Well, it depends on which one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nothing, Boogie Nights is my number one. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Perfect. Well, no, I mean, I have, I think the only pool scene that I know of, which is the, the, the party at Jack's house. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's several, but okay. The one that I have as my scene is the one where the Colonel shows up 
and uh, it's like this long tracking shot and um you get you sort of get to see all the characters and then it follows the girl underwater and then yeah. Eddie and Reed are having a diving contest. Yeah, exactly. No, you need That's to go not... you need to go all the way around. Full rotation. Right. But yeah, yeah but the there's the other one that I also love, which is why I'm drinking a margarita, which is when Eddie first shows up at the house. Yeah, and he there, first meets him. cool scene, and uh, he goes and meets Reed, and he's, like, bartending, and he's grinding his margarita, and they're, like, talking about how much they squat and stuff. No, you say. Yeah, yeah. That, so th- there, there, those okay. are two great scenes. Either one could be my number one. I but... forgot that those were different scenes, so um, I'm just going to say both of them. That would be one long, life. awesome scene if that was all the same thing. <laughs> I mean, I'm just remembering also, like, um, you know, Louis Guzman trying to talk Julianne Moore into letting him be in a porno. I'm remembering, yeah. like, uh, I, you need a different theme, Buck. My my theme is chocolate love. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the colonel being there. And then, I, I mean, it's just, it, it's an amazing scene. Apparently, Paul Thomas Anderson got the idea for, like, the underwater shot from a movie in the 1950s called I'm Cuba. Uh, it's it, it's an amazing feat of cinema, but also like character building because you get to know all about all the main characters are in that scene and the way they interact is just awesome. Like I love when movies were a random like Louis Guzman and Julianne Moore. They would have no reason to talk to each other at all, but I love that they talk to each other in that scene. Like their their strands of the movie are completely different. I love when a movie has a big cast and the characters are in an environment where they can interact with each other because there's just there's so many questions. And of course, you know, we're for, we we're talk, we also talk about little Bill and little Bill's wife and then the are you giving me are you giving me shit you know, uh, or what, what's what's his name? Uh, the 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 Ricky J character, Kurt. Are you giving me shit? I, I love that. That's technically not at the swimming pool, but that's a that's a great uh, moment. <laughs> Anything at the house? I mean, basically, that's all the same sequence. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we agree. We have the yeah. same number one. I don't think that's ever happened. <laughs> I, we don't really have the same number one. I think because I I I think I would choose the later sequence, but it's a, it's we can call it the same number one. I did choose the later sequence. Oh, okay, well then, okay, it is the same number one. All right. <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah, the tracking shot where yeah. the colonel shows up. The party, yeah. the party. Not when Dirk first comes to the house. That was a party, too. The whole thing's a party. It, well, it is Boogie Nights. That's that's fair, yeah. If if I was going to go with Boogie Nights, the one I would have thought of would have been when when Dirk first shows up. And, yeah. and the, How the can, you When they first meet. You can't hear the song, Mama Told Me Not to Come, and not think of that scene. <laughs> uh yep yep all right honorable mention time uh let's see here i've got a few here i need to mention all right first i need i, I need to mention this my number one film of 2003 is a movie called swimming pool um i have seen it once and it's been a long time it's like the most and- unterry number one movie Oh, it's a, it's an am- I remember it's an amazing movie, but I, I remember very little about it. And so many things happen around that swimming pool in that movie. I, I if I would have had time, I had to watch four movies for this podcast. I watched them all in the last 36 hours because it was the last week of school. Um, So if I had time, I would have rewatched swimming pool just so I could talk about the movie swimming pool when we're talking about scenes around a swimming pool. But I didn't. So it's on my honorable mention. Uh, of course, the graduate uh, has some iconic mm. swimming pool scenes. Uh, the the final scene in Palm Springs. Uh, mm. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess I should go pick up my dog. You have a dog? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, 
And then uh, the uh, another one I had was traffic. When Benicio del Toro, they they get in the swimming pool oh, to make yeah. sure that no one's uh, no one's bugged. Uh, so there's that. That one's a good one. One that I it's not really a swimming pool, but I thought of it and actually thought that Adam might have it on his list, but I didn't actually predict it. Is Batman Returns? Uh, there's not a swimming pool, but there's there's the penguin pond, or like the climactic scene happens. Bruce Wayne, why are you dressed up as Batman? He is Batman, you moron. Um, it, it's a it's a great scene. And then I had two more I wanted to mention. Uh, every opening uh, shot from season two of Breaking Bad with the uh, teddy bear in the pool. Uh, I had that. And then, of course... Well, what about uh, the Breaking Bad where uh, he gets uh, Walter Jr. drunk? Oh, that one too. <laughs> or when Skyler the, just walks into the pool. That or all too. the bills that get thrown into... When Jesse throws all the bills into the water. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it, it's cool not... scenes from Breaking Bad. Though. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, or when, or when Walt lights all the money on fire and then puts it out by throwing it in the pool and then yes. fishes it all out. Exactly. That's another yeah. good one. And then the last one I need to mention is the uh, the uh, cover to Nevermind by Nirvana. Nice. Yeah. You still didn't mention the one I thought was going to be your number one. What was? What was it? I am a golden god. Oh, how did I not? Oh man. <laughs> I should have on anyone's list, man. How did I forget that? I don't know. <laughs> I'm on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> I dig music. I'm on drugs. Real Topeka people. Real Topeka people, man. Yeah, that that totally should have been on my list. And, and I know. Yeah, kick, kick off Caddyshack or, or Minority Report. That belongs up there. Ah, man. Dang it. I like my list, though, but that that should have been on there. All right, Zach, what are your honorable mentions? Um, I went with Day of the Dolphin. Anything <laughs> with Dorsey Scott in a tight swimsuit or sea suit. Um, I had uh, The Sopranos, the scene where Anthony Jr. breaks into the swimming pool because apparently a young Lady Gaga is in that scene, but there's actually a lot of good swimming pool scenes in that, in that show. Eighth Grade, uh, little mm -hmm. Children, The Descendants, the ver a very Brady sequel, the scene where uh, 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 Peter Brady, no, it's Greg Brady, hits on uh, the uh, lifeguard. It's kind of like a Wendy Peppercorn type scene until the lifeguard ends up being Marsha. Ah, yeah, that was a good, that's a good one. Um, uh, <laughs> Meet the Parents, I don't know how that wasn't on anyone's list. Clueless, oh. the scene where uh, it's at the Val party and the guy's throwing up into the pool with the helicopters flying over the sky. Um, I did not choose the King of Staten Island. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale, the scene where um, a young Sydney Sweeney is thrown off the diving board with an anchor attached to her leg. That's a good scene. Man on Fire, Showgirls. Um, the PSA from the 1980s where the chick is on drugs and dives into an empty swimming pool. That's like still creepy. Uh, and then um, Uncut Gems. Even though it didn't have a swimming pool scene, uh, Adam Sandler was resurfacing his new swimming pool allegedly. So I think that counts. I wasn't resurfacing anything. Um, I want to know how in the world Showgirls wasn't actually on your list. I want. I wanted to stay away from sexual scenes. <laughs> I, I felt like that. I mean, if it, you know, we're talking like Breaking Bad swimming pool scenes. Sexual swimming pool scenes could be its own category. So I, I just I wanted to, a, a more creative use of swimming pools. Okay. Yeah, because if we're doing our top five uh, threesome swimming pool scenes, my top three would be uh, Spring Breakers, Alpha Dog, and Wild Things. Wild, yeah, sure. 
Although I, mean, I believe it's Amber Heard, Amanda Seyfried, and Anton Yelchin. And is it's, it's, and then, yeah, Spring Breakers. I mean, like um, I was going to say too. Um, Showgirls is a sexual scene, but it's like hilariously bad sexual yeah. scene. Like Kyle MacLachlan <laughs> just kind of shows up. Whoa, where'd your clothes go, man? I mean, that was like, yeah, kind of a like a great, great hilarious uh, scene too. So yeah, so that, that's why I would I would maybe consider it uh, a non-sexual sexual swimming pool scene. Well, uh, for my honorable mentions, the other ones that were like iconic, I had, uh, of course, Almost Famous and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is obviously like as iconic as you get, and Anchorman, which is why I have Ron Burgundy behind me. I have a very important announcement to make. Cannonball! <laughs> and then, you know, uh, two that I love that I, I knew weren't going to be on anyone's list are Little Children, where uh, they've realize that Ronnie is snorkeling with all the children at the pool. Uh, e2 Mama Tambien, when uh, both of the guys are laying on the diving boards. And then ones that like are just ridiculous. Uh, Lords of Dogtown, when they first realize that they could skateboard in the empty pool. And also another empty pool scene in Con Air, when uh, uh, you know Steve Buscemi and the little girl are singing you know, mm. as the plane's taken off. Uh, Piranha 3 Double D, because the entire movie is basically around a community pool, and it's it's kind of a ridiculously horrible movie. And uh, Police Academy 5, which there's a few of them, but my favorite is when Hooks is trying to do a demonstration about how to get a group of people to move back, and she starts screaming at them, and they just, like, run backwards and jump in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one in Miami, right? Yeah, Miami Beach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. We, we got to deep dive some Police Academy at some point. Yes, the whole series. No, well, not Mission to Moscow. <laughs> I have not. I have yet to see Mission to Moscow. You're lucky. All right. Well, uh, well, let's recap our lists, and then we'll uh, we'll try and guess Adam's list. So my list one more time: number five, Caddyshack; number four, Minority Report; number three, Ferris Bueller's Day Off; number two, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood; and number one, The Sandlot and Almost Famous should have been on there. All right, Zach. Uh, my number five was Let Me In and Let the Right One In, a tie. Number four is Mrs. Doubtfire. Number three was Minority Report. Number two is It's a Wonderful Life. And number one was Boogie Nights. My number five was The Sandlot. Number four, Leaving Las Vegas. Number three, National Lampoon's Vacation. Number two, It Follows. And number one, Boogie Nights. I think okay. it's the first time we've all had mutual <laughs> Merlots in one of our top fives. <laughs> we all got to say Merlot, I think. Yeah. Okay, now it's time for the game. Who can predict Adam's list? Okay, here is my uh, my prediction. Number five, Anchorman. Number four, National Lampoon's Vacation. Number three, It's a Wonderful Life. Number two, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Number one, The Sandlot. Back. Uh, number five, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Number four... Oh, cool. Yeah, the whole oh, premise of that yeah. movie is that he's building a pool and then he has the fantasy sequence. He has a fan yeah. Oh. Staring out the window. Yeah. Uh number four is the descendants. Number three is Meet the Parents. Number two, almost famous, and number one, the Sandlot. All right, I have number five, almost famous. Number four, the neon demon. Number three, the sandlot. Number two, eighth grade. And number one, Sunset Boulevard. Oh, that's a good one too. Okay. 
honorable mentions we have uh final destination four uh nice. oblivion the social network oh that's a good one that's a good oh, one yeah. the, the, the like hang gliding or something or like yeah yeah zip lining off the off the out. off the chimney uh meet the parents mrs doubtfire the neon demon <sighs> the rocky horror picture show gremlins oh. and anchorman Okay, number five, The Big Lebowski, Bunny's introduction nice. scene. <sighs> the pool isn't the biggest feature in this scene, but the intro to Bunny is perfect. Tara Reid giving her best performance with the only backdrop that would have made the performance better, a pool. Number four, It Follows. The wow. film is haunting from start to finish. Having the final act in this public pool setting makes it even more frightening. Trying to electrify this invisible entity is an experience. Number three, Skyfall. Uh, other than Oblivion's pool scene, this might be the best pool view in any movie ever. The backdrop alone makes me want to take a swim as well. Number two, Boogie Nights. The scene that has the full cast on display. Love the long tracking shot in this scene. Would love to be a fly on a towel and witness every conversation. <laughs> that's a that that's a good. And number one, seriously, Sunset Boulevard Got opening him, scene. <laughs> one of my favorite film openings has such an iconic pool opening to a top twenty-five film of all time. Had me hooked from this opening scene. It had to be my number one. That was all I got right. He didn't even mention the Sandlot. You didn't even mention almost famous. Well, yeah, I thought for sure his he was. I thought you or him were gonna have eighth grade theory. I forgot about eighth grade. That that is a good one. It wouldn't have made my list. It would have been an honorable mention, but that it that should have been mentioned. I think Terry deserves like a quarter point for remembering Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I I don't know how that was (laughs) overlooked by the three of us, Adam included. But like that was a great mention. So we, we all knew Todd was going to win this list. So, Todd, are you going to go with the power ranking that, that we had talked about for next one? Or should we, like, leave the, the all three listeners in suspense? <laughs> I honestly don't even remember what it is at the moment. But you, I mean, we, had, we had talked about best all-time greatest bartenders in movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we could do that. Because I mean, we, we knew we were, you were going to win this list. It was sort of... I didn't know. I I gave I gave you almost famous stuff and uh, he didn't even have that. Sunset Bull. I don't even remember. I don't. I barely remember a swimming the opening pool shot in the in the movie stuff. is that's a dead body floating. It's a in the dead pool. body in a swimming pool. That's, yeah, that, that's stupid. I mean, he might as well have said the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Come on, Adam. <laughs> I mean, the Red Sea is a swimming pool. <laughs> exactly. There, I was thinking of a couple's pool scenes in Sideways. One, one of which where Miles, oh, where he's uh, grading, yeah, grading papers, and the other one where he, uh, he's talking to Jack about uh, after he gets his surgery done on his nose, or no, well, it's not surgery yet, but he's got the bandage on his nose, and he's trying to figure out, you know, I think it was Gary. Seems fishy. Post. Yeah. Just in honor of the end of the school year, I should have had Miles grading papers in the swimming pool. On there somewhere. All right, Todd, what's the score? Uh, I now have 30 and a half. Zach has 22 and Terry has 17. And a quarter. 
If you really want me to put a quarter point on there, I will. <laughs> 17 and a quarter. I mean, I'm the only one that remembered the flamethrower in the swimming pool, so... I'm not even the one that suggested it, so that's why I'm going with it. Okay. Okay. All yeah, right. we should always give out a quarter point to the one who comes up with the movie that everyone forgot. Like, that... That was or just with the best call. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Best yeah. call. Terry should also lose a quarter point for not remembering Almost Famous. <laughs> True. Yeah. Okay, you're right. Take out the quarter point. That's a great call. <laughs> yeah. He's back at 17. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Enough of this gooey show of emotion. Uh, let's move on. It is trivia time. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Void is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. There's a pool scene in Home Alone 2, by the way. He loses his swim trunks. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. Well, God won trivia last time also. So he got to pick movies for us to watch. Uh, Zach, you're first. All right. Well, I did not watch the movie Todd assigned to me. I went went with his second choice. Um, which was Louder Than Bombs, uh, directed by uh, Norway's own greatest son, Joachim Trier. It's his first English-language movie. And uh, it's a movie that stars uh, Gabriel Byrne, Jesse Eisenberg, and a younger actor named David Druid. And they are a father and two sons uh, who are grieving the loss of their mother and wife, uh, who's played by Isabel Huppert. Um, who uh, I mentioned a time I don't think I've ever given Isabel uh, Isabel pair movie thumbs up before, but actually I think I have. I just I don't have Except great like the five memories of, right after you of uh, Isabel pair movies. But anyway, um, so yeah, uh, so basically this movie is um, you know it's it's very moody, it's very atmospheric. It's all about how these characters are dealing with uh, loss and some very different. Uh, very kind of white privileged suburban ways. You know, you got the, the the dad who's now carrying on an affair with the Amy Ryan character who happens to be the teacher at the little brother's school. And the little brother's kind of got Ricky Fitz syndrome. Like he's, you know, he played games all day, but he's secretly a artistic genius who all the other characters need to listen to. And then you got Jesse Eisenberg who's left the house at this point. Now he's a professor of sociology, but, and he has a wife who's just had a baby. By the way, I really like the opening scene in this movie which is um a delivery of a baby it's not like um the the baby delivery scene in uh the movie we watched last year the um uh piece of a woman woman. yeah but it's 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 kind of maybe maybe a power ranking for best baby delivery scenes this would be on the list because uh he runs into a former flame it's sort of an interesting setup to a movie i kind of didn't know what what direction actually that was one of the best parts of the movies i i really didn't know where this movie was going i knew the mood and the tone that it was trying to establish i think joaquin trier is very much working in a very kind of consistent uh aesthetic uh, but I do have to say I was I was relatively uncertain about where this movie was going. And sometimes that was for the better. Other times it was for the worse. I kind of, you know, was like, okay, come on. I get the idea. Let's move on a little bit. The movie kind of, the problem with the movie is that it thinks it's better than it is. I like movies that have no idea how good they are. This movie thinks it's really good. It thinks it's really clever in some of the flashback sequences and some of the monologues and then some of the dream sequences. And by the way, watching Gabriel Byrne in this movie, it is impossible to watch this movie with him and not think about his character from the HBO series In Treatment, where he plays a psychologist. And like this movie is also very much about the psychology of these characters who have gone through trauma. And it's it just feels like an episode of In Treatment. Um, but anyway... 
Um, I will say I'm, I'm giving the movie a uh, a negligible three stars because it was a two hour movie that had me interested. It felt more like um, a low rent version of like the Ice Storm or American Beauty. And I do have to say there have been other uh, recent kind of indie movies that I've even talked about on this show that I think have done a better job of looking at dysfunctional families after loss, after trauma. Um, I used to be darker in South Mountain and the grief of others are three that come to mind. Um, and I, you know, again, I just, I, I wish that the movie had been um, less, I wish it had been about something a little bit more tangible instead of just kind of putting all these characters in their own situations and never really reaching a climax, climactic point. Uh, it just kind of exists in its own sort of whimsy, doing its own thing, and the characters are pretty unlikable. But uh, for what it's worth, it's a three-star movie, and, and I do like Joaquin Trier as a director. Well, I'm glad you liked it. I, I was prepared for you to give it a negative review. I think it was Trier's first American movie, but... That that was one of those movies I watched randomly on, I think it was on Prime or something back then, and I got completely absorbed by it, and it, I think, I mean, Devin Druid I think is a great actor. He's the best part of 13 Reasons Why, and he, like, I thought he deserved an Oscar nomination for this movie. He is unbelievable, and yeah, it, it, it's one of those movies that's melancholic, but I, I don't know. I, I never had made a connection to, like, American Beauty, but I guess I could see that with uh, some of the dynamics between the family, but yeah. I love Louder Than Palms. I think it was my number five at 2016. This is also totally a movie that Miles would love. And I got to say, I really, there's a scene in this movie where a character says, uh, okay, it will, the adultery will end, but in a way that I think is really corny and cliche. Like, I, it's weird. This, this movie experience was weird because most of the time watching this movie, I was giving it a thumbs down and yet I still kept watching it and was interested in it. So that has to mean it's a good movie, right? I didn't really like the characters. I didn't like the dialogue. I thought it was pretentious and derivative and yet I'm still giving it a thumbs up. So I'm not really sure why, but I did, I, I would recommend it because it's, it's, it's interesting in its, in its weirdness and how disconnected it is. And uh, I think it took some risks in, in a weird way. So yeah, I'm. I, you know, more more power to you, Todd. I'm not as big a fan of, of this movie as you are, but I, I guess I'm glad I watched it. Cool. All right, all right. Well, now it's my turn to report on the movie I had to watch, and this is another uh, Todd favorite. This was his number one film of 2020. I have no idea what you're going to say about this, by the way. And <laughs> this is Blue Story, written and directed by Rapman. Uh, and it is uh, takes place in the on the streets of London, kind of in a in a twist of Romeo and Juliet, uh, West Side Story type of storyline. Uh, your two main characters here are played by Stephen Odubola and uh, Michael Ward, who play Timmy and Marco, uh, two guys from opposite sides of town, um, have friends in or family in opposing gangs. Uh, but they both end up at the same school and become best friends. And eventually, as time goes on, uh, their their connections to the to the gangs around them get the better of them as they go from being best of friends to being the worst of enemies. Uh, I loved this film. This yes. movie <laughs> was you. it was it was. I mean, it it definitely had ties to other types of of stories like i said romeo and juliet west side story it it but with a twist 
but told in such a fascinating way um and and in such a raw way like i felt like this could have easily been been one of the small axe films because it it fits in it's it's like the same area the same the same uh kind of the same culture of what's going on there and then you throw in the writer director just dropping himself into his own movie to to spit a verse in the middle of it all to connect what's going on and to connect it from one scene to the next which i thought was just brilliant it worked great and it's such a fascinating and original way of telling the story and it gave it this edge and it gave it this this uh this momentum moving forward through the the young actors at the heart of it were were outstanding they were amazing uh i think that uh steven adabola the the kid who plays timmy uh he needs to be cast in the uh uh, real life story of Russell Westbrook um, because he looks okay. just like Russell Westbrook. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, they're, they're amazing. And you can tell that they're not, that they're not necessarily the, the known actors because their skills aren't, aren't refined. And that's a good thing because it feels a little more authentic. And then you even have like the kid who's trying to become a rapper from the, from the streets that, that uh, gets mixed up into it all too. I mean, it's, Four stars, four stars. It's it's on. It might even be in my top ten. <laughs> I love it. Well, and you said you said small acts. Like one of the things I mentioned months ago was that like three of the actors in this movie, Steve McQueen took and put in small acts. Like oh, Michael right. Ward is the main character in uh, in Lovers in, Rock. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Kadeem Ramsey, who plays he's the big guy, Hakeem. He's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. he's in Lovers Rock as well. And uh, Khalil Best, who is my favorite character in this, is Killy. He is in, I yeah. believe he's in Alex Weedle, but like, and Michael Ward also won the Rising Star Award at BAFTA the year that this came out. So clearly Steve McQueen Ooh. had seen this movie and he's like, okay, these are the future of British cinema. Like I'm putting these guys in my movie. Yeah. yeah, he was, he was in Alex Weedle. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm obviously I love this movie and yeah, the, the rap man, uh, bridging the scenes together, it should not work as well as it does, but it's amazing and it's riveting. And I don't know. All I said was like, make sure you watch it with the subtitles on because it's hard to kind of follow what they're actually saying. I did. <laughs> and yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I I'm so thrilled that you loved it. That that's awesome. It, it it's a really good movie. It's a really good movie. In fact, I may I may need to watch it again soon because it was just. I know. Yeah, I, I watched it again probably a month after I saw it the first. So just to make sure I wasn't crazy, and I was like, no, this this movie is amazing. It's an example of a, of a musical that maybe uses a formula that's maybe recognizable, but looks different, feels different, and is totally innovative in its style. And I don't know how you can watch In the Heights. And also, I mean, I know this is unfair, but like, it's just, In the Heights, I think, looks so inferior compared to it. I don't know. I mean, and, and maybe it's just, you know, it, it's, it's the overproduced elements versus the more innovative storytelling elements. But... I don't know. just different universes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe, well, like I said about in the Heights in the Heights was like raw music, but a polished product where blue story is, is a raw story with raw filmmaking too. And it, it matched a little bit better. You could say anyways. All right. Yep. I loved it. Todd, 
I need to get Adam are, to watch that now. Yeah, yeah, you need to get Adam to watch it. All right, Zach, what did you give that? What did you give Blue Story? Three stars. I, I want to okay. watch it again. I think because I also gave In the Heights three stars, and yet Blue Story is a vastly superior movie. So uh, I, I get all the points you're saying, and it makes me want to rewatch it. Okay, cool. All right, Todd, trivia time. What are we doing? Uh, so I have how two I categories. Losing? We'll see how long the first. What? I said, how am I losing? Oh, <laughs> well, you might you might be good at this one. Um, we'll see how long the first one lasts. I have the top fifty movies at the worldwide box office that are movie musicals. So, um, we'll you're going to how... win this, Terry. Movie musicals top well, I mean, fifty at the box office, like okay. global. I'll... Yeah, a worldwide box office. And I will say that you can include uh, animation, less of that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so that, that you actually, you probably should get most of these. The number one movie has 1.6 billion at the global box office. And the number 50 has 234 million. So that is a huge range of potential movies. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, so Zach thinks he's going to lose, so I guess I'll start with him. Uh, Les Miserables. I don't think... Oh, okay. Yes, number 20. Yes, that's right. Uh, okay. Uh, Chicago. Chicago is number 39. Um, so Disney movies count, you're saying? Yeah, anime, animated movies count. So The Lion King. The Lion King, which version? I, uh, I don't know. I guess the animated version. <laughs> the animated version is number six. Okay. That that explains a lot. The, I'll, I'll go with the digitally animated version then. <laughs> that is number one. <laughs> uh, Beauty and the Beast. Which version? Uh, we'll go live action. Why not? Live action is number four. I'll go animated. That's number 23. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's get more interesting, uh, even though these are probably going to lose. Um, how about Mamma Mia? Mamma Mia oh, is number 11. Good call. Good call. Uh, I'm going to go with Aladdin live action. That is number five. How about animated Aladdin? That is number 13. Moana. That is number 9. We are 5 apiece, so we have 40 left on the board. Uh, Mama Mia, here we go again. That is number 26. <laughs> <laughs> and number 50 had how much? 234 million. Oh, so man. that's not a very big number worldwide, honestly. World, yeah, worldwide, I guess. Yeah, that's not that's not. Are these big. adjusted for inflation? No, not not adjusted. Okay. Um, I'm gonna go Pocahontas. Pocahontas is number thirty-four. Did Terry say Mulan? He did not. Okay, Mulan. That's number forty. Um, let's see here. Let's go with Hercules. That is number forty-eight. Yeah. <laughs> How about uh, the Little Mermaid? Oh uh, yeah, that's the one I missed. 
Don't say it's not there. Oh, give me a break. That made more than 200 million, right? I would think so. Let me see uh, how if my list that's questionable. That's that's fraudulent. You're telling me that Mama Mia, here we go again, made more money than The Little Mermaid? The Little Mermaid made $233 million at the Oh, that's and lame. So it's 51? So like wow. Can you see the top 51 list? Wow. That is rough. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, okay. Um, I, 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 I got to take advantage of this. I got to think here. Okay. Uh, Frozen 2. Frozen 2 is number 2. And how about Frozen 1? I just realized we hadn't said either of them. Um, And let's see here. Uh, I don't think there's any others in that vein. Um, uh, Let's go Hunchback of Notre Dame. That is number 37. Okay. How about Tarzan? Tarzan a musical? That is number 17. Apparently. I've never seen the, it. The Disney Tarzan, yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that had music in it. Okay. Uh, La La Land. Number 18. Uh, about 12 to 7. Well, at least I, I will be on the next episode of SVP's Bad Beats, though. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I could throw you back in if you have more options. I did have one more, but right, it's go. okay. It's okay. I mean, okay, okay. We'll, we'll go until Terry. We'll get Terry can keep running up the points. It's fine. Oh gosh. Um, well, you have one, and when Terry misses one, yeah, yeah, I'm good with that. Okay, uh, Moulin Rouge. Well, I hadn't missed one yet, but I'll let you go oh, with it. Okay, I thought that's, <laughs> that's not. That's not. Well, then never mind. That's okay. not on the that's, list. That's wow. Okay, I was fifty-two. Uh, I'm going to say West Side Story. I don't think that's on the list. That okay. is not on the list. I thought a classic like that might have might have been on the list. The other one I had written down was Rent, but I don't think that made 230. Yeah. Moulin Rouge made $179 million. So What did we miss out of the top? Missed, yeah. What are the, the big ones? Uh, the Jungle Book 1994 oh. version. That's not even right. That can't be the right in the year. No, that's not, that's not a, a questionable list, man. No, 2016. I was reading the wrong line. 2016. Okay. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, it lists as a musical. Uh, Sing, Tangled, Rio 1 and 2, Charlie and Chaka Factory, Alvin and the Chipmunks, like two or three of them, The Greatest Showman, A Star is Born, <coughs> The White, Grease. The Croods? Happy Feet. No, The Croods is not a musical. Okay. The music biopics we didn't even get into. Saturday Night Fever, The Sound of Music. Those are the old ones. You picked the wrong old one, Terry. I did. Pocahontas. Some would say Pocahontas. Trolls. Oh, yeah, Trolls. What was number 50? Number 50 was Alan and the Chipmunks, The Road Chip. Made more money than The the Little Little Mermaid. Mermaid. (laughs) Alvin and the Chipmunks, Chipwrecked, is number 35. (laughs) Alvin and the Chipmunks, The Squeakle, is number 19. And we wonder about children in this generation. How wow. you know, they're damaged. All right. Well, I could do the other one. 
Um, what I mean, do let's, it. Do, let's it. do it. Do it. I need mean, that was a bad set in in New York. I wanted movies that have new in the title. Oh yeah, this is this is my speed. I don't what actually. I don't actually have a list, so I'm gonna have to actually verify if it's a movie or not. It's just an idea I had before we started. <laughs> movies that have new in the title, and you don't have the list. Got it. Right. And yeah, okay. So I guess we start with Terry. Uh, the New World. That is correct. Uh, the New Guy. That's correct. Um. Uh... Escape from New York. That's correct. Uh, New York, New York. That's correct. Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, na naked in New York. Is that a movie? Yes. Okay. Just trust me. <laughs> All right. Uh, Eric Stoltz. Oh, yeah, I see it there. Um... Um, um, oh, New York Minute, the Olsen Twins movie. Ooh. Out of boy. Does it have to be... Does the Newton boys count? It has to be the word new. What about the man who knew too much? No, um, that doesn't count. Okay. No. Um, a New Leaf. Walter Matthau and Elaine May, 1971. I feel like you've mentioned that on the podcast before. <laughs> so it's obviously movies. <laughs> well, okay, yes. Um, New York, I love you. That's correct. Um, New Jack City. Nice. That's correct. All right, I think I'm done. Okay, Terry has a five-point lead. Zach, can you make up some ground? Can I just make up a bunch of bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nothing stopped you to this point. Uh, I don't. I'm just going to safely say I don't think I can come up with five more new ones. So I, I bow down to Terry. I can't think of actually any more, which is embarrassing. I'm thinking I'm going to say Gangs of New York. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. gosh. That's because that movie sucked, and you're the only one that likes it. Hotel New Hampshire. There's there's one. I mean, there was a movie called New in Town, right? You know, like Kristen Bell or something? Oh, I think you're right. And the Space Jam movie is called Space Jam, A New Legacy. Mm. I still think you should have let me do The Man Who Knew Too Much. <clears throat> yeah, that was creative. I guess. But I did say because it's New York. <laughs> but Terry right. wins. I win. Cool. If I get come up with movies for you guys. And I get to give the first quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Uh, my quote of the day comes from the Sandlot. We kind of quoted around this earlier, but we didn't get the heart of the quote. And this is the voiceover as they're leaving the swimming pool. And uh, and the 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 elder uh, of uh, uh, Smalls is uh, says this. He had kissed a woman. He had kissed her long and good. We got banned from the pool forever that day. 
But every time we walked by after that, the lifeguard looked down from her tower, right over at Squints, and smiled. Lovely. There you go. There you go. All right, Todd, you're next. Uh, mine comes from Boogie Nights, and really it's just because when I was making my uh, tequila drink, I did it exactly the way that Reed Rothschild does, <laughs> which is when, when uh, Jack says, you know, make him something good to drink, he he starts pouring the tequila, he drinks some of it as he's pouring it, and then he says two, four, whatever, and then he <laughs> blends it. <sighs> well done, well done. Zach! Quote of the day. All right. My quote comes from Bo Burnham Inside. And uh, <laughs> the quote is, latte foam art, tiny pumpkins, fuzzy comfy socks, a coffee table made out of driftwood, a bobblehead of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a needlepoint of a fox, some random quote from Lord of the Rings incorrectly attributed to Martin Luther King. Is this heaven or am I looking at a white woman's Instagram? And that's going to be totally lost on both of you because you haven't watched it. But uh, it's the song I've been jamming to all week. It would be number two on my power ranking of the best songs from Bo Burnham Inside. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. Someone out there knows what I'm talking about. Someone. Someone does. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we're going to draw this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back at you next week with another episode. Talking more about movies. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together. Yeah!